This is Chapter 4 of Tom Sawyer, Detective. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Tom Sawyer, Detective, by Mark Twain. Chapter 4 The Three Sleepers. Well, all day we went through the humbug of watching one another, and it was pretty sickly business for two of us and hard to act out, I can tell you. About night we landed at one of them little Missouri towns high up toward Iowa and had supper at the tavern and got a room upstairs with a cot and a double bed in it. But I dumped my bag under a deal table in the dark hall while we was moving along it to bed, single file, me last, and the landlord in lead with a tallow candle. We had up a lot of whiskey and went to playing high-low jack for dimes, and as soon as the whiskey begun to take hold of Bud, we stopped drinking, but we didn't let him stop. We loaded him till he fell out of his chair and laid there snoring. We was ready for business now. I said we'd better pull our boots off and his'n too and not make any noise. Then we could pull him and haul him round and ransack him without any trouble. So we done it. I set my boots and Bud's side by side, where they'd be handy. Then we stripped him and searched his seams and his pockets and his socks and inside of his boots and everything and searched his bundle. Never found any diamonds. We found the screwdriver and Hal says, oh, What do you reckon he wanted with that? And I said, I didn't know. But when he wasn't looking, I hooked it. At last, Hal, he looked beat and discouraged and said, we got to give it up. That was what I was waiting for. I says, there's one place we hain't searched. What place is that? He says, his stomach. By gracious, I never thought of that. Now we're on the home stretch to a dead moral certainty. How'll we manage? Well, I says, just stay by him till I turn out and hunt up a drug store, and I reckon I'll fetch something that'll make them diamonds tired of the company they're keeping. He said, that's the ticket, and with him looking straight at me, I slid myself into Bud's boots instead of my own, and he never noticed. They was just a shade large for me, but that was considerable better than being too small. I got my bag as I went a-groping through the hall, and in about a minute I was out the back way and stretching up the river road at a five-mile gait, and not feeling so very bad neither. Walking on diamonds don't have no such effect. When I had gone fifteen minutes, I says to myself, there's more than a mile behind me and everything quiet. Another five minutes, and I says there's considerable more land behind me now, and there's a man back there that's begun to wonder what's the trouble. Another five, and I says to myself, he's getting real uneasy. He's walking the floor now. Another five, and I says to myself, there's two mile and a half behind me, and he's awful uneasy. Beginning to cuss, I reckon. Pretty soon I says to myself, forty minutes gone. He knows there's something up. Fifty minutes. The truth's a busting on him now. He is reckoning I found the diamonds whilst we was searching, and shoved them in my pocket and never let on. Yes, and he's starting out to hunt for me. He'll hunt for new tracks in the dust, and they'll as likely send him down the river as up. Just then I see a man coming down on a mule, and before I thought I jumped into the bush. It was stupid. When he got abreast he stopped and waited a little for me to come out, and then he rode on again. But I didn't feel gay any more. I says to myself, I've botched my chances by that. I surely have, if he meets up with Hal Clayton. Well, about three in the morning I fetched Alexandria, and see this sternwheeler laying there, and was very glad, because I felt perfectly safe now, you know. It was just daybreak. I went aboard and got this stateroom, and put on these clothes, and 
went up in the pilot house to watch, though I didn't reckon there was any need of it. I sat there and played with my diamonds and waited and waited for the boat to start, but she didn't. You see, they was mending her machinery, but I didn't know anything about it, not being very much used to steamboats. Well, to cut the tale short, we never left there till plumb noon, and long before that I was hid in this stateroom, for before breakfast I see a man coming, away off, that had a gait like Hal Clayton's, and it made me just sick. I says to myself, if he finds out I'm aboard this boat, he's got me like a rat in a trap. All he's got to do is to have me watched and wait, wait till I slip ashore, thinking he is a thousand miles away, then slip after me and dog me to a good place and make me give up the diamonds, and then he'll—oh, I know what he'll do. Ain't it awful? Awful! And now to think the other one's aboard, too. Oh, ain't it hard luck, boys, ain't it hard? But you'll help save me, won't you? Oh, boys, be good to a poor devil that's being hunted to death and save me. I'll worship the very ground you walk on. We turned in and soothed him down and told him we would plan for him and help him, and he needn't be so feared. And so by and by he got to feeling kind of comfortable again, and unscrewed his heel plates and held up his diamonds this way and that, admiring them and loving them. And when the light struck into them, they was beautiful, sure. Why, they seemed to kind of bust and snap fire out all around. But all the same, I judged he was a fool. If I had been him, I would have handed the diamonds to them pals and got them to go ashore and leave me alone. But he was made different. He said it was a whole fortune, and he couldn't bear the idea. Twice we stopped to fix the machinery and lay it a good while, once in the night. But it wasn't dark enough, and he was afeard to skip. But the third time we had to fix it, there was a better chance. We laid up at a country woodyard about forty mile above Uncle Silas's place, a little after one at night, and it was thickening up and going to storm. So Jake he laid for a chance to slide. We begun to take in wood. Pretty soon the rain come a-drenching down and the wind blowed hard. Of course, every boat hand fixed a gunny sack and put it on like a bonnet, the way they do when they are toting wood. And we got one for Jake, and he slipped down aft with his handbag and come tramping forward just like the rest, and walked ashore with them. And when we see him pass out of the light of the torch basket and get swallowed up in the dark, we got our breath again and just felt grateful and splendid. But it wasn't for long. Somebody told, I reckon, for in about eight or ten minutes them two pals come tearing forward as tight as they could jump and darted ashore and was gone. We waited plumb till dawn for them to come back and kept hoping they would, but they never did. We was awful sorry and low-spirited. All the hope we had was that Jake had got such a start that they couldn't get on his track, and he would get to his brothers and hide there and be safe. He was going to take the river road and told us to find out if Brace and Jupiter was to home and no strangers there, and then slip out about sundown and tell him. Said he would wait for us in a little bunch of sycamores right back of Tom's uncle Silas's tobacco field on the river road, a lonesome place. We sat and talked a long time about his chances, and Tom said he was all right if the pals struck up the river instead of down, but it wasn't likely, because maybe they knowed where he was from. More likely they would go right and dog him all day, him not suspecting, and kill him when it come dark and take the boots. So, we was pretty sorrowful. End of chapter 4